From the small towns to the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. Today, we bring you the stories of Gwen Boyd Willis, the Toledo War, and Kimberly McCullough. Gwen tells us her story of committing a minor felony in 2005, struggling to find a job after prison, and how she was given a helping hand by an unexpected organization. Historian Ted Long tells us the story of the Toledo War, when Michigan and Ohio went to war over a small strip of land starting the classic Buckeye-Wolverine rivalry. And last, Kimberly McCullough, an adoption and foster mom, takes us into the beauty and difficulties of the foster care and adoption process. Let's begin with Gwen. Gwen Willis was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. My mother's name was Gwendolyn Mitchell, and my father's name was Ernest Boyd. And I lost my father at five years old. He got killed in an automobile accident. So I was raised in a single-parent house. Though life had started out a little harder than it does for most, Gwen found that with a little hard work, she would find success. I was an All-American in basketball. I was a state champion in track and field. I had scholarship offers all over, but I wasn't able to go because my mother was sickly. So I, I had to stay home and take care of her. Then so I worked at University of West Georgia College as an assistant chef to about 2005. That's when I got in trouble. Um, I went to the ATM machine one night with a friend of mine and when I walked up to the ATM machine, it said, would you like another transaction? So I was like, ugh. Got money out the machine, and I took the ATM card, and I went shopping with the card. So maybe a month went by. Some detectives showed up at my door, and... My mom came and she was like, there's two detectives here to see you. My stomach just dropped, you know. I was like, oh, they got me, you know. So I went to the door. I told my mom I was going with them. So I was sitting in the back seat of the car as we was driving to the police station. And I said, Lord, do I tell the truth? And the Holy Spirit said, tell the truth. So by the time we got to the police department, before he even said anything, I said, I did it. (laughs) I just, I just, I did it like that. And I'm so glad that I listened to the Holy Spirit. And because of my honesty, I had nine charges that they had against me. Because of my honesty, they dropped five of my charges. And when I went to court for my charges, I went in one courtroom 
And uh, they did not have enough beds. So, you know, you're supposed to go to jail right away. The judge said, um, well, we don't have enough beds. So you can stay. They let, they allowed me to stay out of jail and turn myself in in August. So I was allowed to be out for eight months because they didn't have a bed. For eight months, how I was just preparing myself like, oh, I got to turn myself in in August to go do time at the women's detention center. I had to do four months, 120 days. Plus they had gave me 10 years probation. So that day came and I went. <laughs> and my time in the women's detention center, man. <laughs> What a place. I call it the jungle. <laughs> Maybe like 50 women in one room. It's a big room with bunk beds. You don't have any privacy. But I remember before I went, the night before I left, my grandmother, she told me, she said, Gwendolyn, you know the real reason you're going down there. I said, no, I don't. She said, you're going to do missionary work for the Lord. And I just, you know, just shook her off like, oh, okay, Grandma. Lo and behold, exactly when I got in there, I was ministering to the women. They had me singing all the time. One of the correctional officers, she was a very mean-spirited lady, very angry, bitter. And I made her my assignment before I left the and every day when I would pass through the line, you know, we get our food, I would speak. I would come around, I'd say, hello, officer, so-and-so. And I would say something nice and kind. As I started out, she wouldn't speak. <laughs> Eventually, when she started talking to me, she had a sick child at home. So she was dealing with that. And eventually, and I was like, well, you know, I prayed for your daughter today. I was asked how her daughter was doing. Eventually, she was, start, she was talking to me, and people was like, wow, she talks to you? I remember the night uh, before I left, she came and pulled me out to talk to me, and she thanked me for taking the time out to talk to her. Then my time came home. I was at home, I was like, so what am I gonna do now? I got a call out the blue from this lady from Westwood College. And she was just giving me this whole talk, you wanna go to school and this, that, and the third. And I was like, I can't go to school. I don't have any money for that. She was like, I can get you in school. So she came to the house and we did my application and everything. And I ended up going to Westwood College to major in criminal justice administration. But despite putting the work in to complete her bachelor's degree, she found that her criminal record was holding her back. Every job I applied to, they would see that, you know, I have this fabulous resume, but when they check my background check, we'll come back with the felonies on it. And that was a lot, of, that was disappointment, you know, doom and gloom and, I can't tell you how many tears I've cried because I was passed over from some great jobs. Even recently, as last year, um, I had applied to 
the Fulton County Detention Center you know, to be a, a counselor there and went through the interviews with about two interviews and uh, they hired me they were just waiting for my background check to come back and I was honest and I told the lady you know hey I have this on my record but I'm in the uh, process of getting my my record pardoned I'm waiting to hear back from a judge and she was like well we'll just wait and see so when my record came back she was like we can't hire you because you have this on your record but she did encourage me to come back and apply again once I got pardoned so yeah I applied for various jobs and that having that record having those felonies on my record stopped me from getting hired Gwen knew she wasn't who her record said she was. She was determined to get her record pardoned, and she went through the process twice, all on her own. This happened back in 2005, you know. It, it had been sitting there all this time. I'm not that person anymore. I'm a totally different person from back then, you know. So the first time I tried, I was gathering the paperwork. It was like trying to pull a tooth because it was like I, I didn't get no acknowledgement. It was like I didn't get no respect. You know, it's like they don't, it, it feel like they don't care. When you're trying to do it on your own, I, I paid the money. You got to pay all these fees. And I applied and um, they said no. I what you waiting four to six months for an answer to come back? So I went through that twice, and it, it came back, and they was like, no, mm mm. Um, it don't you don't meet the qualifications for a pardon. So I had talked to a friend of mine who was a Fulton County deputy sheriff. He was like, Gwen, you're gonna have to get a lawyer. Little did Gwen know that help would come from a very unlikely place, a pulp and paper company called Georgia Pacific. My name is, is Michael Davis. I'm the assistant general counsel at uh, Georgia Pacific, uh, based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Coke Industries, which is you know, the larger company of which Georgia Pacific is, is one part, has a fairly extensive pro bono practice. Georgia Justice was one of the groups that was identified as, as doing work that we were supportive of. You know, a big part of this effort was the company saying, we're okay with you taking time to go work on these pro bono efforts. Georgia Justice actually came over to the GP Center. Uh, part of what they do is to assist people who have served their time with getting, um, getting a pardon. So I said, that's what I'd like to do, and that's, uh, they then went over and met my client, Gwen. The Georgia Justice Project, when you go for an initial interview, you go in with about 30 other people, and they go through, it's like a, a training course where they explain and show everything that they do to help you along with the process, but you had to be selected out of those 30 people. I was selected out of those 30 people. They chose my case. 
we would meet up in the conference room and before we even would get started on my case you know he would sit and talk to me ask questions about me you know he was want to know how's my health and how's my family he showed how he was really concerned you know it wasn't so much as oh we're gonna jump right in here i'm gonna get you in and get you out people don't have to do nothing for you you know and um even though he was doing the pro bono it just let me know that this man is really interested not in just my case but he interested in and what's going on in my life It's, it was probably anywhere between, I'd say, 40 and 50 hours collectively. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's, you know, you're, it's an hour here, an hour there. I got to know her, got her background. We were both sort of learning as we went um, about what needed to be done. She was, her story was absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, she had made a mistake uh, as a young person when she was, confronted when the police came to her. She acknowledged what she'd done. She took responsibility for it. And just an amazing, amazing story about how much work she put into her education and trying to get her life back on track. She was really struggling, but she kept at it. I mean, she's just a, a very determined person. That certainly came through in talking to her and then seeing everything that she had done. So we um, then began to pull together all of the documentation that was necessary for the, the pardon application. Gwen is so determined that it, it made my job very easy because I would say, Gwen, we need to have this document or that document, and she would go get it and produce it. I talked to the board, got uh, an investigator assigned to her case. They then conducted the investigation, and they finally got through with their investigation and, and let her know in August that she had, in fact, received her, um, her pardon. Man, yes, I um, I actually went to Bible study that you know, small gathering of people, and I came home, and and I took my dog out that night and went to the mailbox. I saw that it was a letter from the Georgia state of Georgia, so I came back in the house. I was nervous. I was like, oh, I didn't know what it was, but I still was nervous. <laughs> so I sat down and I opened it and when I opened it, I saw that it was these big old letters and black bold letters that said pardon I didn't even read the paper I just saw that I got my pardon I, I just saw that that was it the big bold letters and pardon and I just sat there and I was crying. Oh, I cried. I mean, I cried hard. Tears from my heart. But they were tears of joy. And, it, you know, it's just, as, as I sat there, I began to think about everything I had done went through. All the no's from jobs. I thought about um, just, you know, having a record a stigma comes with it so people automatically look at you in a negative way and it felt like a burden was lifted off of me a weight was lifted off of me i mean I, i'm free i got a new clean slate and then i began to read what it said 
and just the wording of of the pardon i mean it's so amazing you know everything has been re-established back to me that was taken away from me you know everything has been forgiven <laughs> you know my record has been forgiven and that's it, just i was so elated i was just lost for words you know just when i, I met with her here I mean, she was, I won't say she was a changed person, but you could just tell a weight had been lifted uh, from her shoulders. She just had, she was excited at the possibilities that were now in front of her. You don't know my story All the changes I've been through You don't know <laughs> you wouldn't expect that, huh? <laughs> and no, we were not expecting that. And you were listening to a joyful and triumphant Gwen Willis. People don't have to do nothing for you, Gwen said. I was forgiven. I was so elated. I was lost of words. And then she sang that song for us. We know your struggles, Gwen. We do. And we love you for how you dealt with them and endured them. And, and just your whimsical nature, your joy, your laughter, that laugh. My goodness, we all wish we had one like that. But we can't make it up. That's real. That's you. Thank you for sharing. And folks, we can bring you stories like this because of our terrific sponsors. Like Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now it's time for the story of the Toledo War, brought to us by our very own Monty Montgomery. It's a well-known fact if you live in the Midwest that Michigan and Ohio don't really like each other that much. Most of that comes down to football today, but that hasn't always been the case. It used to come down to a small strip of land known as the Toledo Strip that resulted because of a mapping error in the Northwest Territories combined with interesting language in the Northwest Ordinance in the early 1800s, which ultimately led to a war between Michigan and Ohio when Michigan was applying for statehood. Here's Ted Long, founder of Holy Toledo History, with more on this remarkable story. The rule was something like that Michigan was to run on a line east and west drawn through the southerly bend of the extreme of Lake Michigan till it reached Lake Erie. And if you draw that line, it clearly puts Toledo and Maumee Bay in Michigan. And as the story goes, in 1803, when the state 
legislature in Ohio was putting together their application, a trapper comes down from up north and reminds them, if you follow that, you're going to lose lake access. And so they made an adjustment, applied for statehood. Apparently there was some people in Washington that raised an eyebrow, but nobody did anything about it and it passed. And suddenly Ohio's a state and they have Maumee Bay. Which according to the language of the Northwest Ordinance, should have been Michigan's. Questions started to brew about how did this happen and what's going on. And Edward Tiffin was the Surveyor General of Northwest Territory, later became Governor of Ohio. He ordered up a survey from a guy named William Harris. And that survey followed exactly what the state of Ohio did in 1803. So it was kind of a ginned up deal. It's like, hey, we need you to do a survey. Just make sure it follows what we already did. That became the Harris line. And then in 1818, President Monroe stepped in and said, well, I'd like to order my own survey. So they asked Harris to do it again. And he said no and invited a guy by the name of John Fulton to do the survey. When he was done, we now have the Fulton line. And it, by the way, followed what the Northwest Ordinance should have been. And so the difference between the Harris line and the Fulton line becomes this 450-mile wedge-shaped section of land that became known as the Toledo Strip. And it's five, basically five miles wide at the Indiana border and eight miles wide by the time you get to Lake Erie. But within that small space was something very important to both Michigan and Ohio. The big plus was lake access. You've got Maumee Bay included in that portion of the strip that's five miles wide that includes Maumee Bay. And and that was already a very active port and and, um, an important part of uh, the Northwest Ohio area. But what people also knew was that coming along was probably the biggest economic development project coming, which was the Miami Erie Canal. And that was going to connect the Great Lakes with the Mississippi River. And they knew that a terminus for that had to be somewhere in that area. And so Ohio wanted that terminus, and so did Michigan Territory. So to prevent Michigan from getting it, Ohio simply claimed it as their own. But Michigan, led by 24-year-old Governor Stevens T. Mason, wasn't going to let Ohio walk all over them. Oh no. They were going to fight for the land. But first, with the pen. Well, when Michigan finally comes around to apply for statehood, their governor, Governor Mason, he oversees the passage of what's referred to as the Pains and Penalties Act, which essentially leveled fines against anyone and jail sentences, by the way, on any Ohio officials who tried to exercise jurisdiction over that this contested territory. And so that meant anything going on within what we know as Toledo today was covered under the Pains and Penalties Act. Now the big question became was, how was he going to enforce it? At the same time that that went through, Ohio Governor Robert Lucas then passed a resolution that extended the county borders into the Strip. Before that, If you look at old paperwork here in Toledo area, a lot of it will be filed under Port Lawrence, Michigan, or Port Lawrence Township, Michigan. A lot of the Ohioans just thumbed their nose at the Pains and Penalties Act and the Michigan governor and said, we made the decision, we're we're part of Ohio. 
And that decision to thumb their nose at Michigan resulted in all-out war. And Michigan raised its militia and sent them to Phillips Corner, where the first battle was fought. Spring of 1835, there was a number of things that happened, actually. The, I think it was April 9th, there was a posse that was led down by the Michigan sheriff, and he arrested a number of Ohio State officials. There were some newspaper reports that they tore Ohio State flag down and dragged it through the streets and then burned it. And then a few days after that, about 60 Michigan partisans came down and intercepted a survey team on April 26th, and that became known as the Battle of Phillips Corners. And there's actually a, a plaque uh, out the middle of nowhere designating where this Phillips Corner took place, the Battle of Phillips Corner. Actually, it was no battle at all. The Michigan militia showed up. There were nine members of the survey party. The militia shot over their heads, and um, I think a couple of people were actually captured. The rest of them ran off. There was no blood or anything like that. This was more of a shot across the bow for the state of Michigan or the Michigan Territory. And seeing that Michigan was going to fight for the land, Ohio naturally fought back. Or at least one Ohioan did. Yeah, so a couple of months after the Battle of Phillips Corner uh, in July of 1835, the Michigan Sheriff Joseph Wood comes into Toledo and he's going to try to arrest a couple of Ohio partisans, one of whom is a gentleman by the name of Two Stickney, who actually had a brother named One Stickney. His father, Benjamin Stickney, was one of the, really, the founders of uh, the Toledo area. He was heavily involved in both Port Lawrence and Vistula and helped promote the idea of those two, those two towns coming together to form Toledo. Anyway, the sheriff come in, comes in, tries to arrest two Stickney. Scuffle breaks out. I've heard it described as a penknife. Stickney pulls out of his pocket, stabs the sheriff, kind of left him with a minor wound, but that was the first and only blood drawn in the whole Michigan War. They say that Sheriff Wood was kind of the Toledo War's lone casualty. Soon enough, the federal government, especially President Andrew Jackson, grew tired of these shenanigans and sought a resolution to the conflict. Well, it, there were a lot of different things going on in, in Washington and, and how it played out. There was, it was pure politics, but Jackson eventually steps up and says, enough's enough. We're going to offer you all the Upper Peninsula and we're going to give Toledo essentially what was laid out in the original Ohio statehood uh, application. Folks in Michigan were not real excited about that, but they also knew that the federal government, which had actually reached a point where they were getting ready to distribute actual money to some of the states, in order to get in line for that, they had to get statehood. That money was not going to come to Michigan territory. So they knew they had to get in line. And so originally they voted against the proposition. And then things got pretty ugly when they realized that they were just going to be left out in the cold, weren't going to get any federal uh, support. They had then a second convention, which is referred to as the Frostbite Convention, in December of 1836, and they reluctantly agreed to the compromise and took on the uh, Upper Peninsula, and um, Toledo became part of Ohio. And I, I, it's funny because Michigan becomes the uh, 26th state in the Union 
and a lot of folks said you know they kind of got the short end of the stick but at the same time as time went by they realized that that 9,000 square miles of land they picked up in the uh, UP was heavily loaded with deposits of copper and iron ore and so they were able to get their money's worth out of it from that standpoint and then today if you look at that area it's spectacular vacation area winter summer fall and um, I don't want to say anything having you know lived here in Toledo but I think Michigan might have done okay in that deal in the in the end you think the upper peninsula that's what they got for the deal and Ohio, well, they got Toledo, and it was, a, at the time, what they wanted. What a great deal for both in the end. And that's what compromise looks like, folks. And sometimes, well, things that are wars one day are nothing the next. And thanks to Monty Montgomery and Ted Long, founder of HolyToledoHistory.com for that story. And check out Ted's new book, Forgotten Visitors, Northwest Ohio's Notable Guests. And by the way, folks, this show is free but it is not free to make. And if you'd like to help us, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. And any help you could send us, well, it would be greatly appreciated. Send your tax-deductible donations to OurAmericanStories.com. We try to bring light, redemption, and beauty to you every day as a rebuttal to all that's happening in the news every day. And up next, we bring you the story of Kimberly McCullough, And again, she's an adoption and foster mom, and she's about to walk us through the difficulties and the beauties of the foster and adoption process. Here's Kimberly. It was a happy day. The sun was shining and the courtroom was filled with dressed up, smiling people showing up for a little girl and a growing family. What was clear from the very beginning of her life was that what started in tragedy would not end that way. She would never be alone, and she was so deeply loved by so many people. During foster care training, the goal of reunification was impressed upon us with utter importance and urgency. Children belong with their parents, and when that isn't possible, with extended family. After those possibilities are exhausted, ideally the foster parents will be given an opportunity to adopt the child. If they cannot, other foster families will be asked. If no family is found, they could end up in a group home. The one thing I pray for the most as a foster parent is the assurance of knowing that wherever my foster children end up, they will be loved, safe, and will know they are worthy of belonging. We walked into the courtroom and took a seat, only to stand right back up when the judge asked all the family members to come to the front. My instinct was to stay seated but I was her mom too, even if only for six months. Her soon-to-be-forever mama waved us up. I knew she would. They were already like family. But being a foster mom means I'm always careful, cautious, not wanting to make assumptions about my place. She spent the first 40 days of her life in the NICU before she was finally discharged and we could bring her home. We met her forever parents very early on and knew from the beginning they would become her parents, even before anything had been decided. We spent six months getting to know them, first through visits at the county offices, then in our home for dinner. We heard their story. We felt their devotion to their family. We watched them drive two hours anytime they could to see her. They quickly became friends. In record time, she was able to move in with them at seven months old while they pursued adoption. 
we were thankful to get a chapter in the story God was writing for their family. Finally, at 21 months old, her adoption was getting finalized. And even though I said it was a happy day, adoption is never that simple. The best description I've ever heard of adoption is that it's a broken hallelujah. Adoption starts with loss, the loss of biological parents. This is a trauma many, if not all, adopted children will carry with them forever, no matter when the loss occurred. We walked up to the front of the courtroom, and she finally noticed us, or rather my son. A family member was holding her, and as soon as she saw him, she wriggled down and embraced him. And my oldest baby, my big five-year-old, my miracle baby, he lifted her up with ease, and they stayed just like that, giving each other squeezes and kisses like a brother and sister should. They hadn't seen each other in over a month, but it was like no time had passed. I looked at my daughter, too young to understand what was going on, but knowing how important it was that she witnessed this, to see in action what we experienced with her two years before. And I see my husband and our tiny one-and-a-half-month-old foster daughter fast asleep in his arms, my eyes filled with tears. This is hard, but it's beautiful and it's worth it. They are worth it. A broken hallelujah. Fast forward one year, we find ourselves explaining the transition plan to our children again. Her time with us was quickly coming to an end. I tell my now five-year-old daughter, this is our last week with her. On Monday morning, she leaves for good. You mean for bad, she replies. She understands what's happening this time. Our foster daughter is 13 months old and had been with us since birth. She's as much a part of our family as every other member. Her joy fills every room. Her snuggles could melt the coldest of hearts. Yet, what we had experienced in the last eight months, I wouldn't wish on my greatest enemy. Her case had been drawn out due to strange and unexpected complications. Then COVID hit and it just got worse. The hardest part was that she was the one who lost. As much as we wanted her to be a permanent member of our family, every day she spent with us was a day she should be with her forever family. The turmoil of the last year resulted in countless sleepless nights, anxiety-ridden days, anger that made me sick to my stomach, and so many tears shed for our baby girl. Every time I got a call from someone on her case, it took all my mental and emotional energy not to panic. This was our hardest case to date, but even on the hardest days, I could turn on her favorite song, watch her giggle and dance with my big kids, and knew I would do it all again if I could just take one ounce of the pain away from her. This is hard in ways we can't put into words, but it's beautiful and it's worth it. They are worth it. I grew up wanting to adopt. I remember as a child wondering why on earth anyone with an extra room wouldn't want to be a family for a child who doesn't have one. It made no sense to me. I married my high school sweetheart. We were kindred old souls and connected on a deep level right from the beginning. When we started dating at 15, we just knew in our gut we'd be together forever. Our faith brought us closer together and kept us together through college. He knew early on that adoption was going to be in my future, and he didn't run away scared. Little did I know that my heart was growing for foster care, too. 
On our first anniversary, at the mature age of 22, we became the temporary legal guardians of a family member who was 15 at the time. Seven months of caring for her changed us. We saw how much good change could happen in someone's life in a stable family setting with a strong support system surrounding us. The community from our church were all in for this journey. We made some incredible memories, had amazing breakthroughs, cried and prayed so much together, and naturally made many mistakes. It was hard, probably the hardest thing I had done at that point in my life, but it was worth it. She was worth it. After that, we knew foster care was going to be a part of our lives. Our plan, like you can plan these things, was to have a biological child first and then foster. But a major health scare, multiple surgeries, and two years of infertility made us rethink the plan. We didn't want to waste time hoping for a miracle we were never promised. So we decided that we shouldn't delay any longer and signed up for foster care training. During our first week of training, we found out we were pregnant with our miracle baby. But our social worker didn't seem phased. She said that's always what happens and encouraged us to continue getting licensed. So we did. Fast forward almost two years. Our son is 13 months old, and we finally got our foster care license. Two weeks go by, and we got our first call. It's a baby girl. She was born yesterday and will be discharged from the hospital tomorrow. It's just until we find her family, maybe a few weeks. Can we come pick her up? That's in 12 hours. I wanted to say yes, but I'm terrified. I turn to my husband. His face says it all. How could we say no? From the moment we saw her in the hospital, we were smitten. She was beautiful and dainty and oh so tiny. My son was instantly in love, and I got to witness the sweetest little bond form between the two of them. It was a strange sensation for my heart to grow in love for a little baby that I didn't know existed the week before. As the weeks unfold, what was supposed to be a temporary placement was clearly becoming long-term. We find out more about where she came from, the circumstances of her birth. How she survived it all can only be explained because God spared her life, my second miracle baby. She proved herself to be a fighter with survival skills through the roof. She was climbing on top of the kitchen table before she could walk, taught herself to get dressed by the age of two, and learned to pick locks not long after that. Her hilarious style and silly and mischievous personality kept us entertained and rather busy through her toddler years. By the time we adopted her, five days before her second birthday, it really was just a piece of paper making legal what was already our reality. She was our daughter, my son's sister. She belonged with us and it felt like she had always been a part of our family. Her biological father was involved from the beginning. He did everything he could to fight for his baby girl. He stayed in her life even after he gave us his blessing to adopt her. They had a sweet relationship up until his death last May. Their picture sits in her room and she keeps a photo album of the two of them in her bed so she can look at their pictures whenever she misses him. A broken hallelujah. I'll be honest, after losing two foster daughters, I pause at the thought of fostering again. I understand why some families would hesitate to get too attached to a child just to have their hearts broken. And I understand even more the desire to keep hard things away from our children. But I've seen my children's capacity to love in the midst of brokenness. I've seen them say yes to hard things because their hearts are just so big. The kind of big you only get when you're aware of the suffering around you. 
that's the kind of human I want to be and I want to raise. And even though I pause at the thought, we're not done. There's so many more little humans that need love. It is hard, but it's beautiful and it's worth it. They're all worth it. And what a story listening to Kimberly McCullough talking about what she and her husband decided to do with their lives. I don't know what they do for a living. It doesn't matter. It's what we do with our lives and how we impact others and our careers. Well, it's just one part of our lives, right? And look at what they do to change lives. At 22, they just plunged in. They didn't worry about their financial situation or anything else. Talk about faith and courage and love. These are the real stars here in this country, folks real stars and we love shining the light on Kim McCullough and her husband and so many people like this across this country who love total strangers. The story of Kim McCullough, a real beauty, one of our very best. On the next episode of the Our American Stories podcast, we'll tell the story of Sean Pronger, a man who always dreamed of being and playing with Wayne Gretzky. Find out what happens when his dream meets his hangover. We also tell the story of Liz Faria and how she gets through the holidays without her mother, who passed away. And lastly, the story of Elias Eliasov recounting his experience fighting in Germany during World War II. Thanks again for joining us this episode. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories podcast. To learn more, go to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. Stories.com.